You'll just watch over them and keep them safe and be with those families who have lost loved ones because of floods. And Father, we pray that uh, you will have your hand upon us tonight as we come to worship you. May everything we sing, everything we do bring glory and honor to you. And Lord, may you speak to us tonight. May your Holy Spirit be present with us. And we know, Lord, for that all to happen, we need to be in a right relationship with you. And so, Lord, if there is any sin in our hearts, anything that we have uh, sinned against you, anything we have not done that we should have done, Father, I pray that you would forgive us and cleanse us with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Set us on a path of righteousness for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brother Mike, you'll come. Well, you've heard Miss Gill already playing uh, the song that we're going to sing now. We're going to sing uh, hymn number 16, O Worship the King. And we'll do all four verses. Ms. Gail. Oh, worship the King, all glorious above, and gratefully sing His wonderful love. Our shield and defender, the Pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. Oh, tell of his might, oh, sing of his grace, whose robe is the light, whose canopy space, his chariots of wrath. Good now? Okay. Psalm chapter 7 is is where we're at tonight. We're going through some psalms that we've not looked at before and uh, trying to uh, cover some of those psalms. When you go through the psalms, there's a lot that are in these psalms. Sometimes they're repetitive, which is good. Uh, I mean, that's some of the songs we sing uh, in our hymn books are repetitive. Uh, Sometimes we think, well, I don't like those new songs that that sing the same verse over and over and over again. But we do that in a lot of songs, Uh, even in the old songs, singing uh, the chorus over and over uh, again many times. And so uh, the repetitiveness is good because sometimes it's just hard to get it in here and hard to get it in here in the heart. And so each time that David is writing a psalm or someone else is writing a psalm, uh, it's giving us maybe just a slight bit different twist to be able to see things from maybe from a different perspective that would connect with you uh, in the things that you're going through. And so I've entitled tonight's message, Hope in Our Despair. And we've been talking about that already with David and the things that he had been going through. Uh, We saw in the last um, psalm that we looked at 
uh, that it was uh, uh, to the choir master, it was to be sung with the stringed instruments. It was about the, the things that were going on with, with him and Absalom. Uh, the same thing in, in, verse, in chapter 3, the same thing in chapter 4. We assume chapter 6 was uh, about that also. It's relating to the similar situations. But even if it wasn't, uh, he had many situations that were very similar, uh, even if it wasn't Absalom himself. Well, in tonight's chapter, we're going to see that the setting of this psalm is of a man named Cush, the Benjamite, who was among King Saul's uh, court, who was kind of one of those who just always was flattering Saul, uh, who was always saying things to him to get in with him, uh, and he begins to come against David. And so we want to begin here in reading verse 1 and verse 2 as we go through this entire chapter, looking at what the Lord has to say to us about having hope in the midst of our despair. So let's stand as we read God's word in honor of his word. Again, we'll read the, the superscription. I don't think I have that part on the screen, uh, but it's a, a shigeon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much for how powerful the Psalms are for our lives. Lord, that you inspired David to write many of these psalms and others to write them so that we have them recorded to help us, Lord, when we are going through the difficult circumstances of life that may be similar, at least in some ways, but in the overall way, here we're seeing David faced with despair. We face despair also. And so, Father, I pray that from this passage tonight here in verses 1 down through verse 17 that you will speak to us, that your word will be powerful, alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray, God, that it will be an encouragement to us in the midst of our despair and especially in the midst of our greatest despair, that of our sin condition. That if we need Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, we would call out to him for salvation. If we are saved, that we would learn to apply these principles from this psalm from David in our prayer life, uh, in our walk with you, so that when we do face these times of despair, we would be able to overcome and be able to press forward, even if we have to continue going through the situations uh, that we may face. So bless your word tonight. May it go forth and not return void. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. You can be seated. So we see here, as we said a moment ago, that this is about Cush, the Benjamite. Uh, he was one of the group of the, the evil men from Saul's tribe who reported that they had heard about David uh, during those years when Saul was trying to capture him uh, and Saul was trying to destroy uh, David. Saul played on the sympathy of his leaders and he bribed them many times uh, in, into serving as spies. And that's what Cush, the Benjamite, uh, was kind of like. So to earn the king's approval... And to earn the king's rewards, uh, they even lied about David. They would say they saw David over here and they really didn't just to get in good with King Saul. Uh, we don't know what lies Cush told Saul, but we know that David was concerned enough about the situation to cry out to the Lord for deliverance and vindication. Now that word that we see there, Shigion, is used only here in this psalm. No other psalm uses this word. Uh, it, it means literally there a passionate psalm with strong emotion. Some believe it comes from a word meaning to wander, to cry aloud. And, and that's indeed what we do see David does in this psalm. It's a very passionate plea before the Lord. And so the theme of this chapter here in Psalm 7 is God's exoneration of David, of his servant David, and the judgment of his enemies. That's what we're going to see in verse 6 verse 8 and verse 11. But the main theme of this psalm is that we as God's people ought to learn that when we face times of despair, times of hopelessness, that we ought to 
call out to God to take whatever it is in his hands, leave it there with him, let him fight the battle for us, to trust in his righteous character and to praise him for the victory that he gives us, uh, especially through Jesus Christ. So in the midst of our despair, we can have hope. Now, overcoming despair begins in prayer. And that's essentially what this psalm is. It's a prayer to God. Uh, and this psalm lays out a path to have hope in our despair. Here's the first step that we see in David's psalm here of crying out for hope in despair. And it's just simply this, to call on the Lord. Now, that may seem simple to us, but so often that's one of the first things we forget to do. We try to take things into our own hands. We try to take matters into our own hands and fix situations and to uh, do things ourselves. But David begins this psalm by appealing to his covenantal relationship with God. So look again at verse 1 and verse 2. So he says, O Lord my God. Now if you'll notice in your Bibles that word Lord is all capitalized. Anytime you see that, because that's one of the ways that, that we distinguish which word Lord is, as we're reading uh, three different words many times that are translated Lord in our, in our New Testament and Old Testament Bibles, in our English Bibles, is uh, one will just have a lowercase, all, everything's lowercase. And that's talking about someone who might have a position of a Lord or a master over others. Uh, another one has the capital L uh, and then all lowercase O-R-D, and that's Adonai. Uh, this is the covenantal name of God, uh, Elohim, and it's Yahweh. Uh, and so he, here we see it's all caps, uh, Jehovah. Oh, Jehovah my God, or Yahweh my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. So here he begins talking to God using that covenantal relationship name with God. It's kind of like when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. How does he teach them to pray? Our Father, which art in heaven. Uh, it's a specificness there uh, in the name. And that's what David is focusing on here uh, is who God is. He's in a covenant relationship with God. God, you loved us. You've, you've chosen us. Uh, you, you loved us and you provided for us. So I'm calling on you, God, because I need you now more than ever before. And so because of this tender relationship, he begins to take refuge in God. He seeks protection and shelter and safety from the Lord, uh, his God. Now, specifically, he pleads for the Lord to save me and to rescue me. You'll read the word there that David's enemies, his adversaries, they are pursuing him. And if they have the chance, they're going to tear him apart. David uses this descriptive terminology here, uh, like a lion ripping apart its prey. The, the Message Bible paraphrases it like this uh, and says, God, God, I am running to you for dear life. The chase is wild. If they catch me, I'm finished. Ripped to shreds by the foes as fierce as lions. Dragged into the forest and left unlooked for, unremembered. What a description that David gives in the beginning of this psalm, laying out why he's coming to the Lord. You know, you think about even today, there are many, we talked about this a little bit this morning, there are many believers uh, in other countries around this world who are persecuted who can easily identify with those words. Uh, these enemies of David, they had no regard for David's life. They would kill him brutally if they could, if they caught up with him in any way. So if you ever look at Israel on a map, it's not that big of a country. Uh, I think it's only about uh, 80 miles uh, from one side to the other. It's 100 and something from one tip to the other in, in, the, in the length of it. And so it's not that big of a country, and it would be easy for David's enemies to come across him. Uh, running through the wilderness, or to at least see, oh look, there's some smoke out there. They've got a fire out there. Let's go check to see who that is. Is that David over there? Or, or maybe they, he would see, someone would see some of his troops who might be with him. And so he, he, was, he could have easily been brutally killed. Maybe his adversary Saul, uh, was Saul here in this situation and his men, or Absalom and his warriors. Uh, but think about that. Uh, have you ever felt like that? I mean, whoever said sticks and stones 
bones can break my bones, but words can never harm me, was a foolish person because words can break your heart. Uh, they can crush your dreams. They can destroy relationships. David was heartbroken, and he's turning to the Lord in his time of distress and despair. What we have to remember and what we can learn from this psalm, and at least in one point is, is that God can heal our broken heart if we give him all the broken pieces. But if we don't give him all the broken pieces, he can't fix what we're not willing to give to him, what we're not willing to surrender to him. And sometimes we hold on to things that have hurt us because we just can't give it up because that person did us wrong or they did this to us and, and we just feel like we've got to hold on to that instead of giving it to the Lord and giving it all to him and letting him do his work. When it comes to the Lord Jesus, these words perfectly describe the intent of the religious leaders who persecuted him. Many of the Psalms that we're going to read through have a messianic prophecy in them. And when you read this, this is very pertinent to Jesus himself. Uh, the, the religious leaders who would persecute him, who tried to arrest him, uh, who sought his death, uh, all this describes Jesus perfectly. And yet being in the center of God's will, he was saved and rescued. He didn't die on the cross until it was the perfect time. They tried many times throughout that three and a half years of his ministry, but they couldn't do it. He rested in his father as a refuge until his hour arrived for him to go to the cross, as John 1.29 says, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So understand what David is going through here. You know, when people falsely accuse us and create problems for us, we ought to follow David's example and find refuge in the Lord. But here's what we need to be sure of. Be sure that we're suffering wrongfully, that we're suffering for the Lord, and not because of our own foolishness, not because of our own disobedience, not because of our sin. So that's one of the things that we're going to see as it leads into our, our next point is that we realize that, that, that we need to go to the Lord and to call on Him when we're under attack and in danger because He's available and He cares and He hears your cry for help. Call on the Lord. But then you need to examine your life. Make sure that why you're going through what you're going through is not because of your sinfulness. So often we, we say, Lord, get me out of this. Well, you got yourself into it. You sinned. And what you need to do is to come to the place of repentance uh, to, to be able to move forward uh, through those things. Sometimes the things that are happening to us, God is allowing them to mature us, to trust in Him, to depend upon Him more and more. So David says, I didn't do anything wrong to this guy. I didn't do anything to Cush. Uh, he, he's one of Saul's guys uh, who was flattering Saul all the time. Uh, he's one who was always lying uh, about what, he did, what, what I did. And, and so uh, we see here in this prayer, we need to learn to examine our life. Look at verse 3 down through verse 5. And so David continues in his prayer, and he says, O Lord my God, if I have done this, what Cush is saying... If there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Now, do you remember what that word Selah means there for us? Stop. Take a moment to think about what we just sang as they would be singing these psalms. And so for us, take a moment to think about what we've just read there. So the, the question comes as for David is here and for us is, who can we trust in this life to help us to navigate the difficulties and the challenges uh, that we face in this life? David faced a, a similar struggle. He, he can't trust in the opinion of man he can't turn to uh, the advice of his counselors. He can't depend on his own wisdom or his own abilities. So what does he do? He places his trust in the Lord. Uh, David references the Lord or God, uh, my God here, the Lord my God, uh, 14 times in this psalm 
alone. For the second time now, he refers uh, to him or calls him the Lord my God. And, and so in the form of an oath, he declares his innocence and puts his own life on the line. He says, if I did any of this, then, then uh, in essence what he's saying there is what we might say today, I, I'm telling you the truth, and if I'm not telling the truth, may God strike me dead. And some people are stepping out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> They're waiting for that lightning bolt to come down. David says, I'll stand here. I'm not moving. Because I know I didn't do anything. And if I did do anything, let God strike me dead. David's enemies had accused him of unjust actions, injustice on my hands, as he's talking about uh, in verse 3. He says, if I've done this, if there is any wrong in my hands, if there's any injustice in my hands... Uh, they, they claim that he has harmed his friend. And, and verse 4 he says, If I have repaid my friend with evil. Now, uh, who's the friend that he's talking about there? Could be talking about Saul. Uh, if I did anything to Saul, because you know that he had opportunities to harm Saul. Uh, he, caught, he was in the cave, you remember the time when, when Saul came in to relieve himself and he, he cut off part of his garment. And then he even repented of doing that. Because he, he was lifting his hand against God's anointed. And he said, I, I did wrong. I shouldn't have done that. So, so David says, I had the opportunity that I could have harmed my friend. I could have harmed Saul. Because he was his friend at one point. I mean, think about it. David went uh, when he was just a young boy going out to check on his brothers while the Philistine army was gathered there against the Israelites. And, and, it, was, and it was at that occasion that, that he slays Goliath and becomes the friends of everyone. Everyone loved David. In fact, as David goes on and gets more popular, you remember the saying? David, Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. And, and that just began to get under Saul's skin. Uh, but David says, I didn't do anything wrong to him. And, and you remember that he, he befriended uh, Jonathan. Jonathan and him were closer than brothers uh, to one another, just as close as brothers. And, and he, he never did anything uh, to, to harm uh, Jonathan. Also, in fact, he winds up leaving uh, just to spare Jonathan, to keep Jonathan from, from having to, to keep dealing with his father who kept coming uh, against David. And so he, he says, I've not harmed my friend. Uh, if I've harmed my friend, uh, he says in, in verse uh, 4, with evil, or I plundered my enemy without cause. If I've taken advantage of my adversary without cause. That's what they're saying about him. And they're accusing him of being a bully, uh, uh, taking advantage of his power and his influence and hurting those who didn't see it coming, uh, his friends who were incapable of withstanding his assault. And these words had wounded David. And so in verse 5 there, he responds in verse 5 and says, If that is true, then let the enemy come and overwhelm me and kill me. I'd rather die than have done those things. If he's guilty as charged, he says, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. In other words, what he's saying there, if he was guilty of sin, he was willing to accept God's discipline. But he knew in his heart that his hands were pure in this instance. And so David had, we said before, two opportunities to kill Saul. He refused to do it in 1 Samuel 24, in 1 Samuel 26. And that was proof enough uh, that his heart wasn't filled with some kind of personal malice or, or some desire for vengeance against, against Saul. Uh, you know, how important it is for us in our lives that we are open and honest before God. Because understand this, he already knows your heart anyway. He already knows the deepest recesses of your heart. And, and so it's important for us to be open and honest with the Lord and also with ourselves. If he was proved guilty, then David was willing for his own honor to be laid in the dust. But David knew his hands were clean. So we need to learn to examine our heart before asking God to deal with others on our behalf. You ever prayed a prayer like David prays here? Lord, if I'm the one who's at fault, take me out of the way. Remove me from it. Whatever it takes, Lord. 
because I don't want any harm to come to that person. If it was my fault, Lord, just remove me from the situation, whatever it takes. I can tell you there's numerous times I prayed that myself because I didn't want to be any instance of a stumbling block before somebody. We have to come to a place that we're just like David here, that we come before God with honest hearts, examining our hearts. So here's the question. David had examined his heart, and he knew his conscience was clear. The question for us is, is your conscience clear? Is everything right between you and God and between you and others? Because if it's not, that's the first place we need to start. That's the first place we need to get things right, is repenting before God and seeking to restore ourselves before others. Now, understand this. It's not you to, to, to make the other person accept uh, your, your apology or your repentance. You're just supposed to make the effort. What they do with it is, is their responsibility then. But you need to come clean in your own heart, in your own life before the Lord. And come, he already knows it, as we said, so examine your heart. And so David makes these claims for himself in a, in a specific situation and with a relative sense. And uh, the three uses of the word if in verses 3 and verse 4 support this conclusion. Yet it's true that only one person... Only one man could claim absolutely the moral innocence expressed here in what follows. So under, in other words, David wasn't a perfect man. Because remember what David had done? He had sinned with Bathsheba. And he had, killed, had Bathsheba's husband killed. And so David's not an innocent man by, by any standard here. So he's not saying that I'm a perfect person. But he's saying in this particular situation, in this instance, I didn't do anything to my friend. And I haven't done anything to my adversaries uh, to, to do anything towards them. Ultimately, the person that we see who's being referred to here is Jesus Christ himself. Because he's the only one who lived a perfect, sinless life. Uh, this is the one who allowed his life to be trampled to the ground, to allow his honor to be laid in the dust for sinners who rightly deserved that kind of fate. He showed his mercy and his grace by taking our place and taking upon himself what we deserved. The King of glory, our Lord Jesus Christ, allowed his glory to be buried in the dust so that ours would not. And though our, though our best intentions struggle to escape hypocrisy and, and the effects of the fall, such was not the case with the sinless Savior of this world. So call on the Lord. Examine your heart. And then ask the Lord to act. So when you've gotten those things out of the way, you've confessed your sin. The Bible tells us if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If you take that step and you've done that, you've got everything clear between you and God, then you go before the Lord and you ask Him to act on your behalf. That's what we see David doing in verse 6 down to verse 9. So verse 6 begins... And he says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity of that is in me. Now, now, the only one who can make sense of the despair that we go through in this life, the only one who can make sense of, of all of this that goes around us in this world is the Lord. Friends are going to fail you. Enemies are going to oppose you. Heroes are going to disappoint you. But God will never, ever let you down. He always judges in a righteous and a perfect manner. And, and so David uses... Three strong imperatives here, three strong commands, if you will, or calls to the Lord to, to, to act. He says, rise up, 
He says, lift yourself. He says, awake. He calls on the assembly of the peoples to gather around the Lord as he takes his seat on high over it, as verse 7 is talking about. God is called on to condemn the wicked in his anger as he opposes what David calls the fury of my adversaries. He's appealing at this point to the righteousness, to the holiness of God. Uh, The psalmist says, you have appointed or ordained judgment. In other words, what we see there, he's saying, God, you are a just God. You are a righteous God. You are a holy God. And you will do what is just. And David is confident that God will take care of his enemies and do whatever to his enemies needs to be done. And he will do it publicly as he sits enthroned as the sovereign Lord God. But then when you read verse 8, verse 8 is a little bit surprising. Because notice verse 8 again. The Lord judges the peoples. Then notice what he says. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. David knows that the Lord judges the peoples. What's the peoples? The nations. But then David speaks personally. And he asked the Lord to vindicate him according to his righteousness and integrity. Now, David believes that that after having searched his heart, that he hasn't wronged his friend and he hasn't wronged his enemy that we talked about in verse 3 through verse 5. Now, he, he doesn't claim, as we said, to be sinless. He doesn't claim to be morally perfect. He claims that as far as he can tell, he has acted rightly toward his friend. He has acted with integrity towards his enemies in this instance. And yet still he trusts the whole situation to God. And that's why when he comes to verse 9, he can pray like this. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous who test the minds and hearts Oh, righteous God. David knew that danger was near. And he's wanting the Lord to move into action. It's during those times in our lives when we're going through times of despair that we seem like, where are you, God? Why aren't you working? Why aren't you delivering me from this situation? It's in those times when God seems inactive that we tend to get impatient. And we want to see things happen immediately. But understand this, the Bible describes God and said, God is long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to salvation. That means our enemies even. And so he's, he is more long-suffering than we are. And we have to wait for him to work in his time. That's where the problem comes for us because we're faced with a despairing time and we know we're supposed to come give it to the Lord and we we pray to the Lord to take care of it, do what you need to do in this situation, but I want it back because I want to do it myself. We feel like we need it back. We need control ourselves. We just can't trust God. We get impatient and we don't let him work it out in his time, in his will, in his way. David knew that the Almighty God could test the minds and the hearts. And he wanted to see the wickedness of his enemies exposed and stopped. So God, you know their hearts. Everybody else may be fooled by them, but you're not. And so he says, you know and test the minds and the hearts. He wanted the wickedness of his enemies to be exposed, to be stopped. David's defense was with the Lord. You know, when we think about what we're reading here, how can God love the world and hate the wicked? God's love is a holy love. And if God loves righteousness, he has to hate wickedness. God expresses his anger at sin every day. He allows sinners to reap the consequences of their sins day after day after day. In fact, we're going to read about that when we get down to verse 16. But sometimes their persistent rebellion causes God to send a special judgment when his long-suffering has run its course. In other words, there is a point that you can get to where you will incur God's judgment in a special judgment. But, But he also acknowledges in all of this, you are the one 
who establishes the righteous. You are the one who tests the minds and the hearts. You are the righteous one, God. Charles Spurgeon said this, when we are right before God in how we think and act toward others, we don't have to fear the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame. Seeing every act, every thought, and every emotion. When you're right before God and you're living faithfully before God, you don't have to fear his judgment. The writer of Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says that when you're in that kind of place in your life, then you can come, it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He says you can go before the throne of God's grace. How can you do that? When you've come to him confessing your sin with being open and honest in your heart before him. And you can confidently call on him to bring justice and right judgments. Even if that means God has to judge you. And that's what David was willing. Lord, if it's me, judge me. So call on the Lord. Examine your life. Ask the Lord to act. And then rest in that confidence. Not in your confidence. Not in the confidence of friends or heroes uh, of the faith. But, but rest in the confidence of who God is and what he has promised to do. These verses in verse 10 down to verse 16 continue to develop the theme of God as being just and righteous as a judge. So once again, David sings a word of confidence and assurance. So let's read verse 10 down through verse 11, and then we'll pick up with verse 12 and following in just a moment. So he says in his prayer to the Lord, in his song here to the Lord, My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. So David sings this word of assurance and confidence. My shield, my protection is with God. He's the one who saves the upright in heart. It's the Lord who protects. It's the Lord who delivers. And then you come down to verse 11, and verse 11 explains why David has this kind of confidence. Because God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. So the stark reality of certain and painful judgments begins to unfold in these next verses in verse 12 down through verse 16. So verse 12 says, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. What's that mean? Sharpen. Some of you know that. Remember that from the old days. You wet your, uh, your, your, your sharpener, you sharpen the blade on your knife or, or a machete or uh, an axe or something like that. It's wetting it. And so that's what he's talking about here. He says, if a man does not repent, God will wet or sharpen his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. Have you ever, have you ever been bow hunting or used a bow? You use a compound bow? It takes a lot. To pull it back but once you get it back so far then you're at a breaking point there and it's and it's easier but after a little bit of holding it it gets tiring and you sometimes begin to shake but he says he's got the bow pulled back he's ready to shoot the arrow the bow has been bent and and readied his bow he has prepared for him his deadly weapons making his arrows fiery shafts they've been lit with a fiery flame Behold, he says, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and his, on his own skull his violence descends. And, and so let's go back there to verse 12 and, and kind of go through and pick out some things here. Because uh, as you see there in verse 12, uh, he's talking about the one who does not repent. So using this series here of descriptive images, David says this of the Lord. He's going to sharpen his sword. He's already strung his bow and made it ready. He's prepared his deadly weapons. The tips of his arrows are, are lit with fire because our righteous God is a righteous God, but he's a warrior God also. He's a loving God, but he's a holy God and a jealous God. 
And he doesn't ignore sin. He doesn't fail to condemn it in the most severe ways. Unrepentant sin will be dealt with and ultimately destroyed. But he's long-suffering. And he's wanting you to deal with it yourself, to come to the place of repentance. But the Bible very clearly warns us, if we don't come to that place of repentance, there will be judgment for our sins if we refuse to repent. And so unrepentant sin will be dealt with. Of that truth, we should have no doubt that the Bible tells us that. In fact, what you read there in verse 14 down through verse 16 is very similar to what James says in his letter in James chapter 1, verse 14 through verse 15. In, in Psalms, uh, it says here, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he's made. Here's what James says in James 1, verse 14 and 15. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth, that's the pregnancy aspect there, to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so these verses begin to paint this chilling figure here, this picture of how sin works and how sin ends. And he uses two different images here. One is the conception uh, and birth. And then secondly is digging a pit and falling into it. And so verse 14 there describes the wicked person as being pregnant with evil. Because what he's saying there is that evil has filled him up on the inside. And eventually it's going to conceive trouble. Eventually it's all going to come out in some actions and it's going to give birth to deceit. Jesus even warned us against that in Mark chapter 7 and verse 21 against having a heart uh, that he describes in verse 21 and 22 of Mark 7. He says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft and murder and adultery and coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Where does all that begin? In the heart. And God says, protect, keep your heart focused on him. Sin works its way from the inside out. And so that's what he's describing there in the, in the birthing process. It happens on the inside and eventually it's going to give birth to actions of sin in your life. The second image is there in verse 15 and verse 16 that shows us that sin doesn't produce the desired and intended results. So what does he say the wicked person does? The wicked person goes over here and he digs a pit. I think of in the jungles where maybe they would dig a pit and they would put those stabs sticking up, sharp stabs sticking up so that it would kill whatever the prey is that fell into it, whether they're hunting animals or, or, or trying to protect themselves. And they dig a pit and they're intending it for the enemy. But along they come running and they forget, oh, wait a second, we put a pit here, and poof, they fall into it themselves, and it causes injury to themselves. That's what he's describing here in these verses. He says, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief, gives birth to lies. Verse 15 says, he makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the, fo to the hole that he made for somebody else. So what God, what he's saying here in this prayer and what he realizes is, is that the things that they are doing to him are eventually going to come back on them. It's the principle of what we read in the New Testament. You reap what you sow. And so he, he, the, the trouble comes back on his own head. They fall into the, own hole, the hole they made themselves uh, for David. His own violence comes down uh, on top of his head. Verse 16 says, here's the way the Message Bible says it. Mischief backfires, violence boomerangs. You ever seen the boomerang? You throw it, and it always comes back. And that's what his enemies, they were intending harm to him. And they thought if they threw the boomerang out, it would harm David, not realizing it was going to come back on themselves. Now, God, when you look at what God did with Saul, God abandoned Saul to his own ways. And ultimately, 
What we read about here, the sword and the arrow, eventually catches up to him. What we read about in verse 12 through verse 13. He wanted to kill David. It's kind of like he dug a pit himself to, to, to trap David, to kill David. But it was his own sword. You remember that? It was his own sword that killed himself. You think about throughout the history of Israel. You think about Pharaoh. Pharaoh ordered all the male Jewish babies to be drowned in the Nile. You catch that? Drowned in the Nile. When, they, when the Israelites left Egypt on their way to the Promised Land, when he said, you can go, after the, the plagues that had come upon them, he relented then and started chasing after them, and they had come to the Red Sea, and Moses holds up the staff and the sea parts, and, and the Israelites pass through on the other side. When they get through to the other side, Moses lets the staff down, and what happens to Pharaoh's army? They drown in the water. He said, kill all the little babies in the Nile. Notice what happened to them. They were drowned in the sea, in the Red Sea. You remember in the book of Esther? In the book of Esther, it was Haman who had built gallows for, for, to hang Mordecai on. Who actually got hung on the gallows? Haman did. Haman was hanged on it. Friedrich von Logau said this, Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceedingly small. I don't know if you've ever seen a mill. I went to a mill yesterday down to Falls Mill and looked at the mill that they have down there, and you see those stones, and they pulverize things. You, you take just some, some kernels of corn, and, and you, you can see in the jars that they have there the different layers of how it can pulverize a, a, a kernel of corn into a fine powder-like flour. That's the way God's judgment can do. Ultimately, this passage is fulfilled when God raises his son from death and his son's people with him, and death itself is destroyed. Call on the Lord. Examine your life. Ask the Lord to act. Rest in the confidence that God is going to take care of it in his way, in his time. It may not be the way you wanted it to happen. In fact, God probably knows some things about the person you think is your enemy that you don't know. That maybe they're going through something and God is using what they're going through to bring them to repentance. And so it may be that God doesn't bring a, a, a bad thing upon them, but brings them to faith in Christ through what they're going through. And you have to be ready and willing to let bygones be bygones and know that God did what he needed to do in that person's life to change their heart. So have that confidence to rest in whatever God does. But notice the very last verse of this prayer. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. After all that David has gone through, after all that David has been wrongfully accused of, he comes down to this. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. So what do we see this psalm ends on? This psalm had started out with despair, and now it ends on this high note, this celebratory note. It closes with thanksgiving. It closes with praise, not for the fact that the sinners have been judged. Thank you, Lord, you got him. You let him have what he deserved. No, that's not what he's praising the Lord for. But because the righteousness of God has been magnified. The fact that people are ensnared by their own sins and ultimately judged doesn't bring any joy to the hearts and shouldn't bring any joy to our hearts as believers. But the fact that God is glorified and that his righteousness is exalted, that ought to cause us to praise him. God judges sin because he is holy. Now when you look at this psalm and you come down to verse 17, do you see David ever saying anything Thank you, Lord, for taking care of Cush. Not once do we see that anything had changed on the outside. Nothing had changed on the outside. Cush the Benjamite, he was still a sorry, no good liar. And he was telling lies about David to everybody who would listen. 
but David had changed on the inside. His heart was set on God's goodness. That's where we need to come. That We're not worried about so much what did God do to that person, but Lord, what did you teach me through this? Lord, what did you want to change in my heart? Lord, I want to be where you want me to be through this. If this person, Lord, is hurting and they're in pain and they need to come to salvation, Lord, break my heart for my enemy. That I would weep for them. That I would pray for them. That I would be willing to lay down my life. I would be willing to incur whatever so that they could have salvation. We ought to join David in thanking the Lord for his righteousness. You see, the righteousness of God had been acknowledged several times already in verse 8 and verse 9. It's a theme that the people of God ought to continually celebrate because it gives us a certainty and a confidence that in God's time and in God's way, God will judge the whole earth. You think that that person who did harm to you or that person who wronged you is going to get away with it? Absolutely not. God sees it just like you're not going to get away with anything you did. They're not going to get away with it either. Now, you may not see when that happens or how that happens, but God will judge the whole earth, and he will do what is just. So keep in mind, what did God do? When we deserve justice, when we deserve death, when we deserve the punishment for our sins, God sent his own son to die for our sins, for the sins of the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his son to die for the sins of the world so that he might uphold his holy law and yet at the same time offer mercy and grace. God's justice meted upon his son and his grace and his mercy imparted to you. Wow. Justice and grace, both at the same time. We may not like the way God runs his universe, but for whatever reason that God has chosen to make us like we are, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death and, and sometimes filled with despair, he showed us his justice and his grace on Calvary's cross. And yes, we thank the Lord for his righteousness. And we also sing about the name of the Lord Most High. El Elyon is who our God is. And there's no one like him. The name El Elyon first appears in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 14, verse 18 to verse 22, the story of Melchizedek and Abraham. There he's called the creator of heaven and earth. The Most High describes the universal rule of God to whom his subjects sing praise. This is the God that we worship. This is the God that we praise. This is the God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has a name written on his robe and on his thigh that Revelation 19, 6 says, 16 says, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we can have hope even in the midst of our despair when we call on the Lord, when we examine our life, when we ask the Lord to act and we leave it with him and we rest in the confidence in him to take care of whatever it is and then to praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord, that whatever you do, I know it's going to be just and I know it's going to be right. And so I give it to you. That's where we can come to the place to have hope in our despair. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. What a powerful word from 17 verses in a psalm where David struggled with lies about him and how he treated his friends and how he had even treated his enemies. And what an important lesson for us, Lord, to come to that place and to realize how we can have hope in our despair. Lord, wherever we are on the spectrum in the journey there, Lord, help us to just step in to those steps there and to begin to just begin to do, if it's step one, Lord, if it's just to begin to, to begin to call upon you, to begin to get things right with you so that we know that we're standing before you with a clear conscience when we do come to ask you, 
the requests that we're coming to ask you for, Lord, that we would be right where we need to be. So, Lord, I pray whatever it is you're needing to do in our lives, Lord, whatever you want to do in, our, in the church, Father, I pray that if it is us who is standing in the way, Lord, if it is us who is in the wrong, if it is us who have sinned, then, Lord, bring us to that place of repentance. And if we're not willing to repent, then, Lord, do as David said. Let the enemy come upon us. Let the judgment come upon us. Remove us, Lord, from the situation. Do whatever it takes to keep us, Lord, from standing in the way of what you want to do. If that's me, Lord, let it come to me. Lord, I pray that we would come to that place, that we repent of anything, that we deal with it ourselves first so that you don't have to out of your justice. And Father, I pray that we'll come confessing it before you knowing that if we confess it, if we repent of it, you will hear us and you will answer from on high and you will cleanse us with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Father, we come before you tonight and I pray that we've examined our hearts. I pray that we stand before you in whatever situation it is that maybe we're facing despair in, that we're standing before you with a clear conscience. If we're not, help us to deal with that. But if we are at that place, Lord, and we've confessed our sinfulness before you, then, Lord, I pray that we will give this situation to you, give our friend to you, give our enemy to you, give whatever the situation is to you that's causing despair in our hearts to you. And, Lord, may you handle it in your way, in your time, in your will to bring about glory for you and to bring about good for us. Lord, help us to be patient while you work. Help us to trust you and to know that you're going to see it through in your perfect way, in your perfect time, even if we don't like what you do because we know that you will handle things in a just way. And you will also handle things in a way of mercy and grace. And so, Father, do whatever it takes to bring people to faith in Christ. Do whatever it takes to bring those who are in Christ back to where they need to be, faithfully walking with you, faithfully serving you. And, Father, we just surrender it all to you, and we come to praise your name tonight. You are the great an almighty God who holds everything in your hands, take this situation, ever how minute we may think it is, and bring about your will to bring glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we stand, as we sing, speak to my heart. Not hearing, but heart. <laughs> Brother Mike, if you'll come and lead us in our hymn of invitation, number 281. Indeed, that is our prayer tonight, that the Lord has spoken to your heart tonight. So do whatever you need to do in your life. We thank you for joining with us uh, online there. We look forward to seeing you back Wednesday night, 6 o'clock. We'll be back in the book of Micah again. So come and join us. If you miss, if all you come for is Sunday morning, you're missing so much more uh, by not coming on Wednesday night or, or, or Sunday night. Uh, so come and join us Wednesday night, 6 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you. Uh, you stay safe and have a blessed week. We'll see you this Wednesday.